Well, good morning, all. All right, I um, forgot to tell Fred this to acknowledge if Brett made it aware. Uh, Miles is 17 today, so we need to when you see him, wish him a happy birthday this week. Um, so it's understandable why Brett's listening right now, so we can talk to him directly. It's um, why he broke his bones now. He's getting that old. His youngest is like pretty much a man now, so cheers. Um, I'm also not prepared to uh, not consider Brett as part of the blame for the way that the internet is. He is on drugs right now, and he is in charge of our internet. Um, so it could have something to do with that. So I'm not, it wasn't necessarily Stephen or Erica's, but we'll see. Um, just to recap uh, where we are, we're about two-thirds of the way through the book of Revelation in our series of When the Man Comes Around. As we all have agreed from up front here, uh, Jesus is coming back, brothers and sisters. He is coming back. Um, there's no doubt. In our current pace, considering fall holidays and Reformation Sunday and Advent, we'll finish the series early next February. Um, you've gotten the sense where the four of us who teach fall when it comes to this book and what it tells us as followers of God. I know it hasn't been the easiest of series, but as we've said from up front, it's not an easy book. I don't think it was designed to be an easy book. Uh, we are, it was designed for us to sort of stop and stare at God and go, what? <laughs> at the same time, the gospel hovers. The gospel is ever-present. Um, for uh, the parents, I guess I'm talking to Stephen in this regard, I have two suggested questions to highlight in the New City Catechism for the kids and to use uh, for their use related to this morning's content. Uh, does, do you have one for... Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's an app for the New City Catechism. Okay. Um, so if you want to use this, it's, it's the one we've been generally using, though we're not spurning the other catechisms because they're really good, like the Westminster and the Heidelberg. But this has kind of been the one we've been kind of going in on. There's a great little booklet for kids for the catechism. Anyway, for the two questions, one is question 20, where the question is, uh, is Lena here? Lena, open up at question 20. It asks, who is the Redeemer? And Lena, can you read the answer? She has a booklet. I have it marked for her. The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then question 29 is the other one uh, for the kids and parents to consider. And question 21 says, how can we be saved? Why don't you read that answer? That's a long word. Yes. Another long word. Yes. Only by faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. That's a long word. You should look into that. Your dad can tell you what the definition of substitutionary is. All right? Okay, good. So feel free to use them this week and talk to your kids about uh, these concepts in the sermons. Um, now... Lena and Stephen, keep this in mind even for Della. 
Uh, on page 20, I want you to write the verse First uh, Timothy 2.5. And that is the verse for that question and answer on, on question 20 and answer 20s. First Timothy 2.5, you can write that down. And then on the page for question 29, write Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Those are the two verses that you use as kind of evidence for the answers of that. And parents, you should look at 1 Timothy 2, 7, 1 through 7, and then Ephesians 2, 1 through, 2 uh, 1 through 10, just to give you an idea of what is all going on around that. So I just thought I'd highlight that get you guys involved in some way in what we're talking about from up front. So in 2020, uh, while we were in the midst of the COVID-19 dust-up, I came across a documentary about one of my favorite writers, Wendell Berry. It's called Look and See. It's about his life and advocacy for farming. Not industrial farming, but farming for family and that family's community. Uh, all decades ago, he was making arguments for uh, small to medium farms uh, that are disappearing like mad. And uh, he makes the case for that. He has his entire life. But I think I watched that uh, documentary at least a dozen times during COVID. In it, Barry says something related to farming that is related to this morning's passage. He said this. There is a kind of idealism that seems to be native to farming. Farmers begin every year with a vision of perfection. Every year in the course of the seasons and the work, this vision is relentlessly whittled down to a real result. By human frailty, infallibility, by the mortality of creatures, by pests and diseases, by the weather. The crop year is a long struggle, ended invariably not by the desired perfection, but by the need to accept something less than perfection as the best that could be done. Barry is saying something very powerful here about agriculture work in this broken world. That a farmer starts with an ideal, a vision of their end desire that is unsullied by anything. But then, as that vision is then walked down the path, it becomes assailed by various characteristics and occurrences not planned for, and the vision changes. It changes from its desired perfection, as Barry says, and becomes the best that could be done. There is a wise realism in this thought, and it is something that doesn't necessarily apply only to farming. But there is a unique broadness carried in agricultural endeavors that make this idea more poignant. However, looking at this quote in relation to our verses in Revelation 14, what if the farmer was God? Barry's ideas here are in the context of, of broken, our broken world and lived in the reality of people who are similarly broken. But God is not broken, though this world is. In these verses of Revelation 14, we get some insight into how this would proceed. It's not all pretty, and some of it is downright frightening, but there is glorious grace woven within it. There are two clear sections here that involve reaping. One is a harvest seeming to reference a grain harvest, and the other is a grape harvest of picking grapes off a vine. So let's jump into the passage. This morning I want to talk to you about three observations from Revelation 14, 14 through 20. First, the reaping of the earth. Second, the pressing by God's wrath. And third, the gospel powerfully present. So the reaping, the pressing, and the gospel. 
They're all in here. Let's go with the reaping of the earth. In verse 14, John sees a figure coming on a cloud. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. John describes this figure in three ways that make it rather clear it is Jesus as God. First, the figure is coming on or in the clouds. If you do a quick search of the Bible in the Old Testament, you will see how often a cloud is associated with the presence of God over and over again. Second, the figure is said to be like a son of man. This is a title that Jesus used often about himself. It is, it is a title of deity. Daniel mentions the same image in Daniel 7.13, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there's the clouds again, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Lastly, this figure has a crown on his head, on their head, a golden one that is a symbol of authority. In this case, a symbol of divine authority. So this figure also has a sickle, a sharp sickle, which is mentioned over and over. Like the angel does in the next vision of John's, who also has a sharp sickle. What this signifies is that judgment is coming. Something will be completed or finished, as the sickle was the item used at the end of a growing season. In verses 15 and 16 it reads, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So here we have the Lord coming with a sickle, And an angel from his council declares what he will do. For the hour to reap has come, as the angel says, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Jesus swings the sickle across the earth, and we have this powerful and chilling line. And the earth was reaped. Let that sink in for a moment. And the earth was reaped. Very succinct. Very direct. Several observations about this phrase. Do you feel, do you sense the finality of that phrase? And the earth was reaped. There's no question here. It doesn't say Jesus started reaping the earth. It doesn't say most or part of the earth was reaped and the rest left untouched. It says, and the earth was reaped. There is no question as to what is going to happen In the last half dozen years, we have had a lot of people clamor for finality. The type of finality that is described here, whether it is for justice, for what is right, or for vengeance, as recent examples have shown, there seems to be an innate desire for boxes to be checked, doors to be closed, chapters finished, stories ended. I'm not judging these motives because they are probably as varied as the biodiversity of a dense jungle, but I am thinking... What I think this does show is that there is something bigger than ourselves that we crave. Sadly, many people don't choose to seek that in God. But we as followers of Christ do have an answer. What we can say here, brothers and sisters, is is that Jesus will check all boxes. He will close all doors. He will finish every chapter. And the end of that part of the story will occur. And the earth was reaped. There was no effort in that phrase. One swipe. The earth was reaped. Are you ready for this? 
Second observation. When I first read this passage to prepare for the sermon, my mind went to not just the finality of this phrase, but also its lack of discrimination. The entire earth was reaped. No distinction seems to be made here in the reaping. The earth, all of it, everyone was reaped. But we have heard this before. The reaping here is not just a judgment, but what comes after, after it also. Which is what Jesus says in, par- in the parable of Matthew 13 referenced that we read. Matthew 13, summary. A sower goes out, sows good seed in his field, but unknown to him, his enemy comes and sows weeds amongst his wheat. And the attack is not realized until the wheat and the tares, or the weeds, have grown and the deception is seen. Jesus says the wise sower tells his workers to go ahead and reap everything, everything from the field, and that the separation would happen after the reaping, that the weeds would be thrown in the fire, gathered and thrown in the fire, and the wheat saved. Again, we hear the echo of finality here, as in my first point. And yes, it is uncomfortable. If current experience and news is any indicator, judgment is never comforting, especially for those upon which it falls. But our judgment is not the same as God's. His ways are always clear and always right. Psalm 51 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned, God, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is always justified and blameless without fault in his judgment. And if your reaction to that is, who does he think he is? You should perhaps think about that reaction. And I'll ask you, who do you think he is? Last thought, before I share my third observation of this phrase, and the earth was reaped. If everyone were saved, then there would be no justice. If everyone was saved, then that would mean even the unrepentant would be saved against their wills, no less. If no one was saved, then there would be only justice and no grace. And therefore, no gospel would exist. No chance of salvation. Both of these options carry only indifference. Neither of them carries love. My third observation for this, and the earth was reaped, is a question for you, my brothers and sisters. Do you know we have a part to play in this reaping? We do. It's clearly laid out in Scripture. Let me read it to you. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John 20, 21 through 23. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he, said that, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And one of the ones I say quite often and forgot this morning, Acts 1.8, which I claim for us all even now, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
These are just three instances where Jesus grants authority to his followers, us, to enter into the work of preparing the fields of the earth. When you teach the things of Jesus, you're inviting inviting a fruitful response from our fellow human beings. We even carry on the work of forgiveness of sins in this work, among other things. We are even empowered by the Holy Spirit for this work. These things are not just for our sakes only. We're not given this just for our sakes, though we benefit from that. They are also for individuals around us, neighbors, community, who would become the wheat and not the tares that will be reaped at the end by Jesus himself. Do you believe this? Or is it just a nice warm thought that you have and for a warm thought for others' hearts? Think about this. We've been given authority by Jesus, the Savior, God himself, to do work that he did here on earth. The earth that he will reap. Period. What about the pressing by God's wrath? In this second image, we see a slightly different occurrence. Similar characteristics, different focus. Instead of the Son of Man, there is an angel. Instead of a field of grain, there is a vineyard of grapes. It reads, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel, yet again, came out from the altar, and the angel who had authority over the fire. That's interesting. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. An angel comes out of God's temple with a sickle. Another angel states clearly what this angel is going to do like the other angel did for the Lord. The sickle is swung across the earth and grapes are gathered from all corners and thrown into the great great wine press of the wrath of God. The grapes are trodden on and blood flows from the press as high as the horse's bridle. 1600 stadia, which is about 184 miles or about 200 miles as Sarah read. Pretty wild. A horse's bridle is probably about up to here on me. It would be above Poco's head tall horse, depending on the average size of a horse. That's that deep, five to six feet deep. The only similarity to the previous vision is the sickle. Isn't it interesting that a sickle is used for grapes? Hmm. It reinforces, I think, the symbolism of the sickle being God's final judgment. The differences are there is an angel, not the son of man, though some commentaries have argued that it could be Jesus. The harvest is grapes, not grain, though it is not clear if it is grain in the first section. It is assumed. You just sort of go that way when you read it. And there is a wine press. This is, being, this, is being, uh, this is God's wrath. And we see more results of the harvest in this vision than the last one. And it is a rather severe vision. With the first harvest, the interpretation is left open as to who is harvested. But as I said, I believe it is both believer and non-believer that are collected, so to speak, and it is evidenced in the parable of Matthew 13. In the second vision, it is clear that the result is for those destined for God's wrath. Thinking about anyone destined for God's wrath is not a comfortable subject. Wrath is not a very copacetic feeling in our current culture. Or is it? In our various tribes today, we seem to have an abundance of wrath for those who do not agree with us. 
even more severe for those who would simply ask a question about something we believe or state. Wrath seems to come easy to us these days, but that is not the wrath described here. The Greek word for wrath is thumos, which means passion-driven behavior, expressed anger, personal venting of feelings. Thumos. Now, this is not seen as a positive in many senses, but since God is not flawed with venting his feelings willy-nilly, this word used of God is seen as exercising his righteous anger without mistake or flaw. Think about it. Emotional passion and action without flaw. That is what God's wrath is here. There's no mistake. So it is emotional anger, but it is not an emotional anger that spills into misstep. And that is a huge difference from the way we exercise our wrath these days. God is not going to do something and then say, "Uh, oopsie. He just doesn't do that. Or he doesn't publish a retraction. Or publish an apology for something he said. Oops, I didn't mean to say it that way. Nope. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. I'm sure these verses inspired James, inspired James to write in chapter 1 of his epistle, Know this, my beloved brothers... Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God's thumos is not our wrath. His wrath is not our wrath. His type of wrath is shown in Scripture, as I have just read, and we should find solace in that. I do get angry about things in this world and things in my immediate world. I probably don't struggle with it as some others have, have or do, but I am not so blind as to think it is some, uh, not to think that I sh- it is something I should be careful about in my life. I do get angry pretty easily. I have punched holes in walls and have said things to others, especially my wife, that I do not find any pride in. Do you struggle similarly? Perhaps you should take time to meditate on what God's wrath is compared to yours. Or maybe you don't struggle with anger or human wrath at all. I won't scold that, and I actually might envy that a little bit if you don't struggle with anger. But I would say to you, as a challenge, since we are in a unique moment of history here, and more and more people seem to be trying to undermine some of God's eternal truths, that perhaps you should meditate on connecting with and humbling yourself before God's thumos. God's wrath, his unwavering righteous anger. It is a reality. It may be slow in building, but it is real, and it is always ready to cease at the first moment of true repentance. Last point the gospel, ever present, powerfully present. Now, before we get too laden with the heaviness of judgment and wrath, we should remember that they don't stand alone here in these verses. Yes, both judgment and wrath are clearly readable here, but if that were 
it, I'd get too depressed and want to know more. And, and would, you know, I get too depressed and not want to know more. Perhaps you are the same. There is not just judgment and wrath here. There is also the gospel. There is also grace. There are two things I will point out, one clearer than the other. The first is the wine press. When grapes are trodden or walked on in a wine press, they are crushed to pull out the juices of the grape to make wine, wine being a very common drink in Jesus' day. So common that it was even used at the Last Supper, the First Communion, in the upper room the night before Jesus' crucifixion. So in John's vision... The juice of the grapes being trodden comes out as blood. In this case, it seems like it is the blood of the judged, which seems rather gruesome, doesn't it? But there's a layered mystery here. It is the gruesomeness of the blood of the judged. But Isaiah 63, 2 and 3 starts to give more insight. It reads this. Why is your peril red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one is, was with me. I trod, trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. This shows what happened to the ones who tread on the grapes in a winepress. Their garments would get splattered with grape juice, even making them look like they were splattered with blood after battle or perhaps after being beaten. There's more in Isaiah 63. Let me read the next two verses, 4 and 5. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I, I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I'm going to read verse 4 again but with another possible translation of one of the phrases. I read, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. That's verse 4 in Isaiah 63. Another possible translation. Listen to this. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redeemed had come. The winepress treader here, described in Isaiah 63, is the Messiah. Jesus hung on the cross and no one was there to help him, no one to uphold him. So his own arm brought him salvation through the resurrection. His own wrath upheld him on the cross to bear our sins. This blood pouring out of the winepress in Revelation 14, so much of it that it is high as five or six feet for 184 miles, is not only showing God's wrath, it is also reminding the readers of his provision through Christ. Jesus took on God's wrath in the winepress so that we might respond to what he said in the Last Supper. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The words of the hymn, There is a font filled with blood come to my mind. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And the sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And the sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. There is another piece of evidence of the gospel in these verses about God's judgment and wrath. Where is the wine pressing done? Verse 20, Revelation 14, 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. Why is this significant? 
Let me read three passages and ask a question. Matthew 27, 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Mark 15, 20. And when they had mocked him, being Jesus, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. John 19, 16 and 17. So they took Jesus and and he went out bearing his own cross. You have to be in in order to go out. Where was Jesus going out? John 19 says in the next phrase of the verse I just read, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Where was Golgotha? If you look at the book of maps in the back of your Bibles, perhaps, or you can look online, look for a map of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Where was Golgotha located? It was outside the city. Revelation 14.20 says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Here we are reading severe passages of God's judgment and wrath. And all the while, the gospel echoes in its strains. Isaiah 53.5, the great Old Testament Messiah passage says, But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Later in verse 10, it says, Yet it was, was the will of God, the will of the Lord, to crush him outside the city. Some of the maps I noticed um, have Golgotha outside the city, but then you see this wall and it says Agrippa I. And you might think, well, no, it's still inside the city. Note, Agrippa didn't build that wall until after the time of Christ in the 40s AD. In fact, he didn't even really get it started. He just built the base of it. And then stopped because he thought the Romans might think he's rebelling. So Jesus was crucified. He was crushed outside the city. Like the wine was crushed outside the city in Revelation 14. To my brothers and sisters in the church, I ask, does this not astound you? Does it not make you appreciate the gracious, just, and true machinations of God? To be so involved in layers of communication that are complex and clear that you say hard things, that as you say hard things, you are also echoing grace. Isn't that wild? You're saying something hard, and in the midst of saying something hard, there is grace coming through. That's amazing. As you're saying judgment is coming, you're also saying salvation is here, right in front of you. To my friends who are not in the church, hostile and skeptical, even graciously neutral, I say this. Discard any arguments against a God you think is stoic and even mean. Put away any feelings of anger towards him or life choices that fly in the face of his natural order and look. See that the winepress of his wrath is near, but he himself walked before you into the winepress. And he took that wrath for you. And now he extends the power of the resurrection to you. 
no, <clears throat> no artist could paint as complex and beautiful a painting as the gospel. No author could write as engaging and interwoven a story plot as exhilarating as the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. God's scheming far surpasses any plots and deceptions any of us could come up with. There's an old English poem uh, that could be as old as the 8th century A.D., and it's uh, a dream poem, uh, meaning it was written in response to a vision. And in this dream, the narrator sees this rod or rood, a pole, essentially a cross. It's a poem called The Dream Dream of the Rood, R-O-O-D. And I'll read several sections. So, the narrator sees this cross, and this is what he writes. And yet, lying there a long while, I beheld in sorrow the Savior's tree, until I heard it utter a sound. That best of woods began to speak words. It was long ago, I remember it still, that I was felled from the forest's edge, ripped up from the roots, from my roots. Strong enemies seized me there made me their spectacle, made me bear their criminals. They bore me on their shoulders and then set me on a hill. Enemies enough fixed me fast. Then I saw the Lord of mankind hasten eagerly when he wanted to ascend upon me. I did not dare break or bow down against the Lord's word when I saw the ends of the earth tremble. Easily I might have felled all those enemies, yet I stood fast. Then the young hero made ready. That was God Almighty, strong and resolute. He ascended on the high gallows, brave in the sight of many when he wanted to ransom mankind. I trembled when he embraced me, but I dared not bow to the ground or fall to the earth's corners. I had to stand fast. I was reared as a cross. I raised up the mighty king, the Lord of heaven. I dared not lie down. They drove dark nails through me. The scars are still visible. Open wounds of hate. I dared not harm any of them. They mocked us both together. I was drenched with blood flowing from that man's side after he had sent forth his spirit. And then he goes on. After the writer leaves the dream, he reflects on what he saw and writes this at the end. May the Lord be my friend. He who here on earth once suffered on the hanging tree for human sin. He ransomed us and gave us life, a heavenly home. Hope was renewed with cheer and bliss. For those who were burning there, the sun was successful in that journey, mighty and victorious when he came with a multitude, a great host of souls into God's kingdom. The one ruler almighty, the angels rejoicing, and all the saints already in heaven dwelling in glory when Almighty God, their ruler, returned to his rightful home. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for preceding us in the wine press. Thank you for offering that now to everyone. 
Thank you that we um, trust that. And we ask that you would um, extend that blessing of the faith you've given us and the faith we exercise to others around us. Especially in the face of the human wrath that fills our world right now. Your wrath is very different. I pray that they would see that. I pray that they would repent of their wrath and they would throw themselves upon yours, which is where you will meet them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.